Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, November 6th, 2021. Right now we have our friend Truthfits here with us once again to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 59 of our series. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In our last presentation, we discussed the prophecies concerning the blindness of Israel and the fact that those same people were the blind whose blindness Christ had come to heal, even if today, in many ways, they are still blind, as the period of seven times punishment and the prophecy of the time of Jacob's trouble would also have to be fulfilled. Things which are confirmed in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, or Jesus Christ, as some people may prefer. We also described the kingdom of heaven, that it must be the same kingdom which the children of Israel were promised in the Old Testament once they are reconciled to Yahweh their God, a reconciliation which is also found in Christ. Now we shall move on to discuss other language in the Gospel accounts and related passages in the Revelation, which inform us that the name of Israel still belongs to those same twelve tribes, and that it is they alone who would wash their garments in the blood of the Lamb, and that they are also the subject of the Song of Moses. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Bill. Thanks, Mammy. So, yeah, yeah. So here, once again, we're going to see that uh, there, there really is no grounds for um, a big organized church or different denominations or that, you know, that is Christianity, that uh, you're saved only if you're part of that church or you believe or whatever. It really is only the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And um, that that's what it is, uh, Old Testament to New. And um, in, interestingly, there was a thread that just came up where we was sort of discussing this, uh, which I thought you, you um, wrote something that I thought re really applies here, right? That if you believe that um, it's the church or that anybody can be a Christian, that then nationalism uh, doesn't work at all, right? And and there's no 12 tribes of Israel either. It's just Christianity and, and believers and that you can't deny anybody, as you put it, um, access to marriage or being a part of your nation or anything. And, and you just can't put that together with nationalism. You can't have universalism and nationalism together. But once you realize that that's all bullshit and that really there's only one race in Scripture, the Israelites, then you realize the churches, you just got to get out of them and, and that they don't work and that we can be nationalist and it all fits with Scripture. And that is essentially what Christ is, right? A nationalist for the tribes of Israel, for his people. And, and that is Christianity as well, right? As we're going to see. Right, Bill? Well, well, absolutely, and and what you just brought up, I've been speaking about in other contexts, that the fault of the so-called orthodox nationalists, such as Matthew Raphael Johnson, is probably one of the most notable so-called orthodox nationalists, and even does a podcast using a, a name similar to that. 
Well, they want to be nationalists, and, and the Kinnis also are guilty of this. There's a whole segment of nationalistic Christianity, and they call themselves Kinnists. And they use passages in the Old and New Testaments which state that God had separated the nations in order to support their position. However, in the scriptures, there is only one body of Christ, and we are all part of the same body, and and we're taught not to despise any other member of the body. As soon as we recognize someone of another nation or race as a Christian, then we must admit them as members of that body. And once we admit them as members of the body of Christ, then how or on what basis can we prevent race mixing? We can't. There is no basis. But the truth is that Christ came and and I'll quote this here in a few paragraphs, that, that Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, period. And, and they're his own words. And the apostles, as we are about to see, that is what they expressed, that the hope for which they strive is the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel. It doesn't belong to anybody else, ever. So we will see some of the evidence for that this evening. I don't know if you have anything yeah. to add. Yeah, and also that if you realize that we are the body of Christ, then any kind of race mixing or letting other races in is destroying the body of Christ, right? Because you're trying to only be a nation of Israelites. Well, when you let other people in and mix, then the offspring are no longer Israelites. So you're just destroying yourself, right? Uh, and you have legitimate grounds for that, and that's what people should understand, right? Absolutely. Christianity is not like any other religion that's only a belief system in, in how you live your life. Christianity is much more than that. These promises which we have in Christ and this new covenant in Christ is explicitly made only for the house of Israel and the house of Judah, period. It's an explicit subject of prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, which Paul of Tarsus upholds in his epistle to the Hebrews. And I could establish that the epistle to the Hebrews was written between the Paul, time of Paul's arrest in 58 AD and the time that he was sent to Rome in 60 AD, that that period of time, those two years, is when he wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 8, he cited Jeremiah chapter 31 verbatim, saying, stating that the new covenant was made, was a promise made by God for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. House, a house is a family. It, it's not merely a geographical point. So if that's the explicit promise of a new covenant, how can we imagine that that new covenant could incorporate anyone else? We cannot. And there's another misunderstood phrase in Galatians chapter 3 that a passage 
It, it's a seriously misunderstood passage in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul nevertheless attested, in spite of the misunderstandings, in spite of the mistranslations, Paul nevertheless attested, and even the King James Version reflects that attestation, that once a covenant is assured or sealed, then nobody can change it. Nobody can make additions to it. Nobody can change the fact that Yahweh God had established a new covenant in Christ for only the house of Israel and the house of Judah, period. And any denial of that or any attempt to add to that is a brazen attempt by man to add to the word of God. And who is any man to add to the word of God or to try to change the promises of God? Those people can't possibly take God seriously. They can't possibly take the scriptures and the ministry of Christ seriously when they attempt to do that. Yeah, and if you made a deal with somebody and then later you went back on the deal or tried to alter it, then, uh, you know, People would rightfully say, oh, no, you know, you we made a deal. You can't make changes now. We agreed. But then when they come to the Bible, oh, well, you know, God can change it. So, suddenly <laughs> they don't apply logic to that. Right. It, it's crazy. Yes, it is crazy. It's a it's a complete cognitive disconnect. And, and Michael Raphael Johnson and all of the other Orthodox nationalists that they suffer that disconnect. There's only one body of Christ. But that body of Christ is only comprised of a certain race of people. It's not comprised of every race. That is delusional. That is not Christianity. That is Roman imperialism. That's what it is. And the Roman Catholic doctrines were actually reflective of the imperial policies of the Roman Empire which every empire before that and since that time have also adopted this idea of universalism so that they can grow their power and control and have peace, internal peace, among diverse races and, and tribes of people that would naturally compete with one another. Okay, that's a digression, but that's the truth. And, and universalism is a false god. It's an idol. It's never going to happen because the God of the Bible stands against it. It's the corruption of his creation. As it is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, the apostles had witnessed a wealthy young man asking questions about salvation of Christ and boasting of how he himself had kept the law. So Christ informed him of what to do further if he wanted to be perfect. And the man was saddened, since he could not bring himself to part with his wealth, his great wealth. That does not mean that the young man will not attain the kingdom of God. Although Christ expresses the difficulty a wealthy man may have in living an ideal Christian life, he nevertheless states that all things are possible with God. So we read 
Then Jesus said unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And one of the underlying meanings to what Christ had said there is that you can't buy your way into the kingdom of God, no matter how rich you are. You can't buy your way in. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So here we see that in spite of his love for his wealth, the rich young man could still attain salvation. The promises of salvation were to the children of Israel, without exception, and not for only the rich or the poor. The apostles actually had a lot of the teaching of the Pharisees, which they were raised with, which divided salvation, not along racial lines, but along the lines of a man's works, which is false. Even in the Old Testament, it's false. So we see that here, in spite of his love for his wealth, the rich man could still attain salvation. So Peter spoke to Christ and asked another question on behalf of himself and the other disciples. Then answered Peter, and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all. And they did, the, for the apostles had left behind their vocations and their families and everything else to follow Christ. We have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration or resurrection. When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There's nothing there about Israel and Gentiles, right? Again, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 22, Christ instructed his disciples that the greatest among them should be the servant of all, and he used himself as an example of that, as it is how he had conducted himself. Then he offered, some, he offered them some encouragement and said, Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations or in his trials, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my father had appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This was a very short time before his arrest in the garden at Gethsemane. There is no mention of Gentiles, or of any church somehow becoming one of those tribes. When the apostles heard those words, 
They could only have conceived them as a reference to the literal descendants of the ancient children of Israel. And that is the only way in which Christ had used them as he himself had attested that he had come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew chapter 15. He didn't forget those words when he uttered this passage, these words, in Luke chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 43, we read, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, he's addressing the children of Israel. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee, since thou, meaning the children of Israel, since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. So he would preserve the children of Israel in spite of and at the expense of the other races. Fear not, for I am with thee. Now, this is written at least 40 years after the captivities of Israel had begun at the hands of the Assyrians. They had been going into captivity since around 743 B.C. And in 721 B.C., Samaria was destroyed and many of the people of Ephraim were taken into captivity, along with tribes that had gone even earlier. And by 700 BC, the Assyrians had taken off 46 fenced cities of Judah into captivity and had, had conducted a siege against Jerusalem, and it failed right around 700 BC. So now Isaiah is writing these words after that siege. So this could be as late as the early 690s BC or mid 690s BC that he's writing these words. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed, meaning the children of Israel, from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him, meaning Israel, for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. Then in Isaiah chapter 45, verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And again, a little further on. In the words of that God, but Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. When Isaiah had written those words, Israel was ashamed and confounded because they were taken off into captivity. Then in Isaiah 49, chapter 49, where the same children of Israel are being addressed. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood, as with sweet wine. 
and all flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior, speaking to the children of Israel, and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So when Christ comes 700 years later to redeem the children of Israel, how the hell can we ever imagine that he may have redeemed or saved anyone else? Later, in Isaiah chapter 60, where the children of Israel are once again the subject, whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. Thou shalt also suck the milk of the Gentiles. And, and I, I really despise that word because it should say nations in reference to the other nations. And shalt suck the breast of kings and thou shalt know that I, Yahweh, am thy savior and thy redeemer, speaking to the children of Israel, the mighty one of Jacob. Nothing ever changed the scope of those promises of Yahweh for the 12 tribes of Israel. And these and other passages show that in the New Testament, long after the resurrection of Christ and his ascension, the children of Israel were still 12 tribes. The promises were still reserved for them alone, and there were no substitutions possible. There is no room for substitutions in any of the language of the law and the prophets, and Christ came to uphold the law and the prophets. There is no room for substitution in the words of the apostles themselves. So, so Bill, where it says um, they, they shall suck the milk of the nations or Gentiles, that basically means that all the wealth is going to be uh, transferred to the scattered children of Israel, right? That essentially, their nations will replace the uh, Adamic world, right? Well, well, yes, and that was actually fulfilled to a great extent by the time of Christ, where, where the Romans and, and the Phoenicians in, in the far west and the, the Romans in the central Mediterranean and the Dorian and Danan Greeks, but not the Athenian Ionians, were all descended from the ancient tribes of Israel. And then the Galatahi, Galatians, the Germanic tribes, the Scythians, were descendants of the later Israelites of the Assyrian captivities, and they formed the Germanic tribes. And they had actually, the Parthians were, were a segment of them, and they had come to rule over the east, to rule over old ancient Persia and the ancient land of Cush in Mesopotamia, that the tribes descended from the Israelites by the time of Christ had become the dominant tribes of the Adamic world. Dorian Greeks had even ruled over Egypt. And we've demonstrated in many of these earlier proofs, of these hundred proofs, that all of those people certainly are Israelites or descended from and the Bill, ancient Israelites. It could be argued. And Bill, sorry, just what you said earlier about, um, you know, where Peter was asked in Jesus, it shows us that um, if you do come to CI, that you're not suddenly going to become rich or have it easy, right? That, in fact, as you said, life can actually become harder, probably, right? 
Well, well, right. And and life does become harder. And Peter himself speaks about the trials of your faith in his first epistle in chapter 1. Paul of Tarsus, look at the trials that he underwent. Bearing the, the, the Paul was the first teacher of what we call Christian identity. If you read Paul's epistles, as we have demonstrated many times, he was telling the Romans that they were descendants of the ancient Israelites. He just didn't say it explicitly. But there's plenty of language in Romans to show that he was addressing Israelites, and he even told them that Abraham was their forefather. Paul, in his first epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 10, explicitly told the Corinthians that their fathers had been baptized in the cloud and in the sea with Moses. And the key to understanding that is that the Corinthians were Dorian Greeks, and the Dorians had come in the 12th century BC from Palestine through Crete and invaded the Peloponnesus. Two generations after the, after the Trojan War, according to Homer and, and the Greek classics, the Greek classical historians and poets. So Paul had told the Galatians, who were Galatahi ostensibly, they were Hellenized Galatahi, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. He didn't come to redeem anybody else. And Paul is basically verifying what we just read from Isaiah chapters 43 and 45 and 49. Christ came to redeem those who were under the law and nobody else. Paul didn't say Christ came to redeem those who were under the law and the Gentiles. That's not what he said. It can be argued that the resurrection occurred in 32 AD. In Acts chapter 21, and we're not going to nitpick over these dates because we're only establishing a general timeline. In Acts chapter 21, Paul of Tarsus had been arrested in Jerusalem. And it can be demonstrated that this took place in 58 AD, 26 years later. Then, at the end of Acts chapter 24, it is evident that he had already been kept in bonds for over two years. So a new governor, Porcius Festus, and, and I always laugh at that name because it basically means joyous or happy pig. <laughs> Porcius Festus had taken the place of Antonius Felix and had Paul speak he had Paul speak before Herod Agrippa. He had Paul speak in his defense, in his own defense, I should say. So Paul is standing before Herod Agrippa in 60 AD. Actually, it's Herod Agrippa too, right? And Paul is standing before him in 60 AD, just before he was sent in bonds to Rome. Paul had the opportunity to have his case heard in Judea, and again before Agrippa, but he was distrustful of the Judeans, and being a Roman citizen, asserted his right to appeal before Caesar. But evidently, Herod Agrippa was 
curious and wanted to hear him anyway. So Festus had made that arrangement. So 28 years after the resurrection, Paul is recorded by Luke as having said in that chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 26, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Now to find those promises, you have to go to the Old Testament prophets. Unto which promise? Our 12 tribes, and to understand that, you have to go to the Old Testament prophets, instantly serving God day and night, whether they know it or not, they're serving God by fulfilling the will of God, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. With this, we see that Israel is still those same 12 tribes that they had been in the Old Testament. You can't twist this language and come up with any other conclusion. This is corroborated in Romans chapter 9, where Paul had prayed for the Israelites among the Judeans, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who had not yet accepted Christ, and professed that they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, because he knew that many of them were actually Edomites, for which reason he went on in that discourse to contrast Jacob and Esau, because they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And he was only praying, on account of that, he was only praying for his kinsmen according to the flesh. For that reason also, before he made that explanation, he attested that his prayer was for those who are Israelites, who are true Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption which is actually the position of sons. That's a mistranslation. But that's okay, because here Paul tells us that the adoption is only for Israelites. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who was over all. God bless forever. Amen. So you could read that, and there's no way to squeeze anybody but Israelites into the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the fathers, because, as Paul says there in verse 5, they are the fathers, and those things were given to the fathers and to the fathers exclusively. You can't squeeze any person of any other tribe or race into this equation. Ostensibly, the epistle to the Romans was written only months before Paul's arrest in 57 AD, which can be determined from comparing the salutations at the end of the epistle to the circumstances of the gathering of the apostles in the Troad, detailed by Luke in Acts chapter 20. So on both occasions, 
Paul expressed the fact that the hope in Christ was exclusively for the same ancient 12 tribes, the children of Israel, and not some replacement so-called church. In Romans chapter 15, Paul said, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, because he was circumcised, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Now, this talk of Gentiles in verse 9 of that chapter of Romans. But once we correctly translate Gentiles into nations and realize that Paul is quoting the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 2, in regard to those nations, and the Song of Moses sings of nations that were only made that were in, in a context that only describes the 12 tribes of the children of Israel as nations, then we can once again see, and when we examine all the promises made under the fathers that Christ came to confirm, according to Paul, then we once again see that only the children of Israel are being counted in this equation. Only the ancient children of Israel and the tribes which descended from them. Period. Later, at the very end of the book of Acts, which record events which transpired in 61 AD after Paul arrived in Rome, upon addressing some of the Judeans of Rome, Paul is recorded as attesting that for this cause, therefore, have I called to you to see you and to speak with you because that for the hope of Israel, those 12 tribes he mentioned in Acts chapter 26, I am bound with this chain. And um, Paul was just going to assemblies and people and, and spreading the gospel. There's, he wasn't trying to set up some kind of church or, or authority or, you know, hierarchical uh, church-like structure, right? You, you can clearly see he's just going to people for the for the Israelites, right? Right. Paul never established a hierarchical church-like structure. What Paul established was a series of independent Christian communities, a collection, if you will, of independent Christian communities throughout Greece and Anatolia. He had sought to travel beyond those places, he did get to Rome as he explained that he desired to go to Rome in his epistle to the Romans. When he wrote that epistle, he had never yet been to Rome. He did get to go to Rome, but not in a way that he expected. He went to Rome as a prisoner. So he also expressed to the Romans that he would have liked to have gone on to Spain, to Iberia. And in Iberia, at that time, were not only Gauls or Galatahi, um, elements of the Germanic tribes, but also great numbers of Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians, for the most part, or Iberians, which is a word which comes from a Hebrew term, were descended from Israelites who had long before the Assyrian captivities had left by sea and established colonies overseas.
According to Flavius Josephus, the city, the great Phoenician city of Carthage, was a colony of Tyre. Tyre was a city of Asher in the territory of Asher, which was inhabited by Israelites from the time of the conquest of Joshua. And according to the books of Joshua and Judges, there were no Canaanites in Tyre. In the time of Dido, whom Josephus dates to approximately 850 BC, perhaps as late as 800 BC, but he dates the founding of Carthage, I believe he dates it to 150 years, roughly, from the building of the temple by Solomon. So I believe that would bring us to about 800 BC. And Josephus dates the founding of Carthage to that time, 800 BC. And his source or authority was the Tyrian archives, the Chronicles of Ancient Tyre, which Josephus had access to and quoted at length in his book, his two books against Appion a Greek, and they were translated, those Chronicles of Tyre were translated, I believe, by a man named Hecatahius of Abdera. I might be wrong, it may have been Menander of Ephesus, but I had this in papers at Christagenia. I have a more precise citation. And they are lost. That that He translated them into Greek, and they're lost to time. We don't have them any longer. That They were somehow lost, right? A lot of important historical works became somehow lost during the early Roman period. The death of the Apostle James was recorded by the Judean historian Flavius Josephus. In his Antiquities, Book 20, Josephus relates how, upon the death of Porcius Festus, the man who had Paul speak before Agrippa and then sent him to Rome, it was some months before Lucius Albinus could arrive and assume his place as the new procurator of the province of Judea. So, in the meantime... The Pharisees and Sadducees did practically whatever they wanted without fear of a Roman overlord. This was evidently in 62 AD. And where Josephus writes of a certain Sadducee, we read, Now the report goes that this oldest Ananus, now this oldest Ananus was the high priest with Caiaphas at the time of the ministry of Christ. He's Ananias in the gospel. Now, the report goes that this oldest Ananus proved a most fortunate man, for he had five sons who had all performed the office of a high priest to God. Now, there's evidence that this Ananus was a, a Sadducee and an Edomite, but Josephus did not make a distinction. He, he, he actually explained who were Edomites in some portions of his writings, in some respects, he said four times, he explained throughout his writings, that Herod the Great was an Edomite. On four occasions, he explained that. But he, being trained as a Pharisee, and not having been born until 37 AD, he was indoctrinated 
into multicultural Judea, which accepted converted Edomites as Israelites. So this universalism it is basically Jewish. The idea that you could baptize people to become Israelites is Jewish. Christ condemned the Pharisees for that. He condemned them. He told them that they went high and low to seek converts, and when they converted them, they made them twice as much the children of hell as themselves. And, and the Catholic Church adopted that process and that concept that you could baptize somebody and change them to become an Israelite. The and, Roman and Catholic so, Church um, adopted that. They claimed that they were Israel, but that anybody could be Israel. Replace as you theology. said in your, your John series, the high priest was meant to be for life, right? But here you can see that it's it's like the president that you know it was passed around, and it was just it had just become a yearly office or or a few years, right? Rather right. than one high priest for life. Right, it was just a political well. appointment. And Ananus held the high priesthood, I believe, for about ten years as a young man from about the time of Herod Archelaus, who the Romans had actually taken off the throne and banished. And I think that might have happened sometime around 6 AD or 8 AD or 10 AD in there. He may have ruled Judea, Herod Archelaus, from like 6 AD to 10 AD, roughly. And from around that time, this Ananus that Josephus, this oldest Ananus that Josephus is referring to, he held the high priesthood for about 10 years when Jerusalem was split up into a tetrarchy. And one of the sons of Herod was given a portion of his many sons. They were given portions of Herod's old dominion, but they were never made kings again except for three years in the time of Herod Agrippa I, from about 41 to 44 AD. He was the only king who had all the territory of his father. And that wasn't until 41 AD. So that was a different circumstance. So Jerusalem, after the time of Herod Archelaus, was made into a, a tetrarchy, into four little districts that would be ruled over by the Roman governor, whoever was appointed procurator of the province. So after Ananus was Caiaphas, and Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Ananus. And if I'm not mistaken, Caiaphas held the priesthood for a long time, perhaps like 30 years. And he was the, he was the official high priest during the crucifixion of Christ. But Ananus had retained the title of high priest as a title of respect because he, he had held the position in the past. And that is why the word, the phrase high priests appears in the gospel. That's why they were high priests, because one of them was the current high priest and the other was the former high priest. So I'm trying to see how long Caiaphas was high priest, but I know it was a long time. Maybe I'm exaggerating it. 
He died in 36 AD, but he must have been high priest for quite a long time. I'm going to get to it momentarily. I'm sorry, my internet connection seems to be a little slow. Annas they date had been high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD, so it was about 10 years, and I almost had the date right. I, I mentioned 6 as a possibility <laughs> anyway. Caiaphas was appointed high priest in 18, and he died in 36. So there was at least one intermittent high priest. I can't remember all this off, off the top of my head. So he was high priest for about 18 or 19 years. Not quite as long as I thought, but it was a long time. After him, it seems that none of the high priests were high priests for very long. And there were at least 20 of them from the time that he died until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, when there would be no more high priests. The office was lost with the destruction of the temple. It became irrelevant. Maybe the Romans got fed up with them and just thought right now it's just one year appointment, <laughs> you know, to uh, belittle them and reduce their power. Well, well, the power to appoint high priests was moved around. Sometimes the Romans had reserved it. In the time of Christ, it was actually Herod Agrippa to whom the Romans granted the authority to appoint high priests. And that situation stayed with Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II, from what I remember. I mean, I discussed this at length in, in my presentations on the Gospel of Acts and on the Gospel of John, on, on the Book of Acts and on the Gospel of John. I had gone in depth into the high priests of the time, because the Sadducees were actually high priests for just about the entire period from Herod the Great until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The high priests were Sadducees and never Pharisees. And there's reason to believe, and, and I presented my arguments in, in my commentary on Acts chapters 4 and 5 some years ago, there's reason to believe that these Sadducees were Edomites. They were never really Israelites. And the Pharisee, the Sad, most of the Sadducees were from just a few families of the Edomites, which is probably why they virtually disappeared from history as a party after the destruction of the temple. The Sadducees virtually disappeared from history. The destruction of the temple did not expel the Jews from Judea. That didn't happen or from Jerusalem, that didn't happen until, even though Jerusalem was pretty much leveled, the Judeans, or Jews, by this time we could properly call them Jews, were not really expelled from the area by the Romans and driven out completely until after the Bar Kokhba Rebellion and the Kedos War in the time of Trajan. That's when they were finally expelled. And that situation, I don't think it changed officially until the Muslim conquest of Palestine and the Jews and the Muslims got together that they, that they cooperated with each other and, and got along just fine for until 1945. 
when, when the Jews had the Israeli state, actually until about 1916-17, when the Balfour Declaration was signed. And even the modern wars between Jews and Arabs are basically a charade, because Jews and Arabs have, have gotten along with little problem outside of the dispute over Palestine. Okay. Unnecessary digressions, perhaps. It was some months before Lucius Albinus, after the death of Festus, could arrive and assume his place as the new procurator of the province of Judea. So in the meantime, the Pharisees and Sadducees did practically whatever they wanted without fear of a Roman overlord. This was evidently in 62 AD. So where Josephus writes of a certain Sadducee, which is that Ananias from the Gospel, the eldest Ananias, who was high priest from 6 to 15 AD, perhaps. This oldest Ananias proved a most fortunate man, for he had five sons who had all performed the office of a high priest to God, who had himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formerly. Now, this is not a Jewish perspective. This is not a Christian perspective. This is a Jewish perspective, and Josephus had imagined that these men were legitimate high priests because that's the way he was raised and trained as a Pharisee. So he was no different than perhaps a Tory or a Republican of today who is going along with the system, even though the system is not, does not reflect the traditional truths which developed our nation, right? Early on, I mean, everything's been corrupted. Well, well the, the Edomite Jews had corrupted Judea the same way 2,000 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. So, he had himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formerly, which had never happened to any other of our high priests that they would have five sons being high priests. Josephus is thinking that that's a good thing. But this younger Ananus, one of the sons of, of the elder, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a man bold in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees, of course they all were, who are very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Jews, as we have already observed. When, therefore, Ananus was of this disposition, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. There was no procurator. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but upon the road. Hadn't arrived in Jerusalem yet, or Judea yet. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James and some others, and Whiston has a note, or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. And they were, they were stoned. James was stoned in the temple. This act did cause some fallout for Ananus. As Josephus said, that the Judeans, who seemed the most equitable of the citizens, had complained to both Herod Agrippa, it would be Herod Agrippa II at that time, and to Albinus. So Agrippa removed him from the high priesthood. But in spite of his son, 
having been relieved of the office of the high priest. Josephus goes on in that chapter to attest as to how the elder Ananus, or Ananias, had proceeded to corrupt both Albinus and the high priest who replaced his son with gifts so that he could continue his long-running criminal enterprise. And Josephus described it. He didn't put it in those words, but he described that very thing. So we see that this elder Ananus had probably been bribing officials all along so that his sons could be high priest, five of his sons could be high priest. He, he was stealing from the people and bribing the officials. Just like a million Jews do all throughout history. A million Jews have done all throughout history. It's their nature never changes. And this we see is as a soon digression. as they get power, what they do, they start killing Christians, right? Uh, same thing in Russia with the Bolshevik Revolution. So people should be aware of this, that this is inevitably what's going to start happening once they get the uh, full upper hand, right? Absolutely. It, it's going on as we speak in the Unite the Right lawsuits in, in Charlottesville. This was a digression, but it shows that James, the brother of Christ, was at Jerusalem and continued to profess the gospel of Christ until his death in 62 AD, or I should say, until his murder in 62 AD, because he was actually murdered. That is where the records in the book of Acts had left him as Paul had seen him shortly before he was arrested in early 58 AD. But we do not know precisely when, James, precisely when James had written his only epistle. We don't know when he wrote it. It was evidently late in that period, but we don't know exactly when. And he opened that epistle with the salutation, in James chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So James also, like Paul, had addressed the same ancient twelve tribes of Israel, who are the only recipients of the promises of God which are in Christ. So we now have at least four important New Testament witnesses to this assertion, which are Matthew, Luke, Paul, and James. For the same reason, John wrote in chapter 11 of his own gospel that Christ would die, not for that nation only, but also that he should gather in one the children of God that, are scattered, that were scattered abroad. So we see from James that those children of God scattered abroad are the 12 tribes. At the very end, in Revelation chapter 22, we see that only the 12 tribes, in Revelation chapter 21, I'm sorry, we see that only the 12 tribes can enter the city of God. And in fact, we would assert that the city is an allegory for the tribes themselves, where we read in Revelation chapter 21, 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. That, that's John speaking of himself. And showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereof, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the apostles of the Lamb. Those, that city is laid out just like the tabernacle in the wilderness was laid out in the book of Exodus, where you had the tabernacle in the center, and three tribes on each side of the tabernacle to form a, a large square and, and the three sides. There were three tribes of Israel on the north, on the east, on the south, and on the west, arranged around the tabernacle. The reason why there are never any Gentiles mentioned along with the 12 tribes is because the 12 tribes are the Gentiles or nations, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and elsewhere. The church comes from among the tribes, and those tribes cannot be made from a church, as they themselves come from Abraham's loins, according to the promises, according to that which was spoken, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4. This can't be confused. It's very clear. It's cut and dry. This leads to our next proof, which is of the sealing of the tribes and the washing of the garments of the great multitude, which we see in Revelation chapter 7. I don't know if you have anything you might want to interject before that. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you actually read the Bible, it's all consistent. Uh, you know, just uh, ending what we've just said in the previous proof, that it's always about the 12 tribes continuously, right? And um, going on to the next proof, you can see that um, in Revelation, he sees this vision of, um, you know, a great multitude of Israelites, right? Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. So, so you have to think, well, where did they go then? If, if you know, they really did um, what some people believe disappear and vanish, or well, hired, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And if you actually read Revelation, you realize that they're actually Christians. Well, well, you should immediately realize then, well, well, that could only be the Europeans, right? It's impossible for anybody else to be the Israelites, right? The apostles, they didn't know it at the beginning, but they had learned it over the course of the book of Acts. They knew where the 12 tribes were, and that's why they were bringing the gospel to Europe. They never brought the gospel to Arabia or, or to Egypt or to Ethiopia or to India. That the, the later stories of apostles in those places are innovations of the Roman Catholic Church. 
in order to advance and promote their universalism. None of those stories are based on any contemporary, when I say contemporary, I mean contemporary to the time of the apostles, any contemporary documentary evidence. There is none. There is none. The apostles had been left behind in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And from those places, there are only records of Luke and Paul and Barnabas going to Europe. There are no records, no extant records of any apostle going to any other non-Israelite nation, period. Now, Christianity did leak into some of those places. The Hindus took Christianity and they made a perversion out of it. They made the legend of Krishna out of the gospel of Christ. So they perverted Christianity and made it into Hinduism. That's actually what really happens when you take Christianity and share it with other races. Africans are going to turn it into their their um, animalism and, and the practices of their witch doctors. That they're not going to follow Christ. And Asians are going to turn it into an, an elixir so that they can have just another omen and aphrodisiac. That's what they do with it. it it's, they, they don't become Christians ever. Observe their behavior. Yeah, I think people have even posted that on the forums, right? Little quotes of what they actually teach in those uh, places. And it's all completely away from Christ. It's all... Um, prosperity type gospel where they imagine that they're going to be rich and and wealthy and that that's the only reason that they follow any type of religion right right jesus just becomes another magic charm jesus on the cross is another magic charm in in an array of charms that they have of idols and and they they just hope to grow rich or or to be happy or to have many children from it that's all and uh, I also think um, the Jews always promote this um, Christianity in other places, right? Uh, um, j- just it's a bit of a digression, but I remember reading um, Sharon Turner's history on uh, Alfred the Great, and he had this random bit where he he believed that um, Christians from India came all the way over to meet uh, Alfred the Great, and I thought, what the hell? Where did he pick this up? And then. When you realize his best friend was a Jew, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, he, he told him that story, right? Or something along those lines. But they must have always been spread in these tales and fictional stories of uh, Christianity in other places, right? Right. If you look up Prester John, Prester John is a medieval fable that was very popular in Europe throughout the Middle Ages, after the time of Alfred. And it was about this utopian Christian kingdom far in the East that was ultimately lost amongst the Muslims. So there's probably some ancient truth to it, because there certainly were Israelites in the East, the Alans and the Goths, They didn't all move to Europe immediately, even though many of them did migrate into Europe in in the Christian early Christian era. And some of them may have received the gospel. The Goths certainly received the gospel while they were in the East, because they were Christians, even though they that they were 
following a heretical form of Christianity, they were nevertheless Christians before Rome, long before Rome, perhaps at least a hundred years before Rome, and they must have gotten that Christianity while they were still in the East. They were Christians before they invaded parts of Rome. So that being said, while it's evident that some apostles brought Christianity to the, the the northern barbarians who were really Israelites, as Josephus had called them, there's no record of which apostles could have done that. There's no record of how the Goths became Christians, even before Rome. Okay. And of course, not all the Germanic tribes had, had found Christianity by that time, because some of them didn't become Christians until the 10th century, the Saxons, and, and some of them even later in Scandinavia. Okay. The sealing of the tribes and the washing of garments of the great multitude. From a study of Revelation, it is evident, and I can't prove this here, but I do prove this in, in my writings and, and elsewhere at Christogenia. It is evident that Revelation chapter 7 is sandwiched between chapters containing prophecies of events related to the fall of Rome. So the 12 tribes are sealed in that chapter. And Dan was not mentioned, at least in our existing copies, which may have been an innovation or it may be for historical reasons. I suspect it was an innovation, and, and I'll explain why. And I don't remember going deep into this in my first Revelation commentary, but I certainly will when I update that in, in the year to come. I suspect that Dan is missing in Revelation chapter 7 because of an innovation, meaning a scribal error, since Manasseh stands in the place where we may expect Dan to have been mentioned, along with his full brother, Naphtali. Dan and Naphtali were both born to the same handmaiden, to Rachel's handmaidens. Under the standard of Dan, on the north side of the tabernacle in the wilderness were Dan, Asher, and Naphtali in Numbers chapter 2. In Revelation 7-6, we see Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh rather than Dan. Later in the chapter, we see Joseph, which would include Ephraim and Manasseh mentioned along with Benjamin. So that's why I believe that this mention of Manasseh is probably a scribal error or innovation and not original to the text. But if the text is correct then it is apparent that there are historic reasons why Dan was not mentioned. But in any event, only tribes of Israel were sealed, and 12,000 from each tribe mentioned were sealed. And in Revelation chapter 8, we see a more detailed prophecy of the fall of Rome that had begun in chapter 6, so the reason for the sealing must be linked to that event. After the sealing of the 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, we read, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed with white robes and palms in her hands and cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. This scene is very similar to the scene from the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem before his crucifixion in 32 AD, where the people were singing Hosanna, which is basically glory to God in the highest, and holding palms in their hands and spreading them out in the streets before him. But that's besides the point. And all the angels round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Now to interpret this. The Judeo-Christians are quick to say, oh, these are all the other peoples besides the 12 tribes. But that's not what it's saying. Just because 12 tribes, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes were sealed, doesn't mean that they are the only Israelites who are going to have salvation in the end. That's not what it's saying. First, the children of Israel were to be an immense multitude. This is promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, from verse 5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Then it was promised to his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. And Yahweh appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and give unto thy seed all these countries." And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Finally, the promise fell to Jacob, as we read in Exodus chapter 32. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and said unto them, I will give I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inhabit it, inherit it forever. So then, the children of Israel were to be scattered into many nations, while also becoming many nations themselves in fulfillment of those promises. So we read in Genesis chapter 36. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel is thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. 
Speaking of the children of Israel, in Isaiah chapter 66, we find a description of this along with an indication as to where the children of Israel would be sent in their captivity, where it says, For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles or coastlands afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto Yahweh out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith Yahweh, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of Yahweh. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith Yahweh. So this is a prophecy of the children of Israel being taken out of all nations, as in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 here, and that is how this must be interpreted. There are other prophecies which correlate with this one. We read a similar prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61, where it is addressing the children of Israel. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord, the priests of Yahweh. So Peter wrote to the Christians in Anatolia and told them that they were a nation of kings and priests. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the nations, and in their glory ye shall boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess the double, everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, Yahweh, love judgment, I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, speaking only of the children of Israel and their descendants, and their seed shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which Yahweh has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. The speaker changes. We don't always see this in the Old Testament or the New. But this is the children of Israel being portrayed as saying these words. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My joy, my soul shall be joyful in my God. And here we have a direct link to this prophecy in Revelation chapter 7. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, Christ calling himself the bridegroom. And as the bride adorneth herself with jewels, Yahweh promising to betroth himself to the children of Israel forever in Hosea chapters 1 and 2.
For as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so Yahweh God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. When Christ called himself the bridegroom, he was referring to this prophecy and similar prophecies in Hosea, where Yahweh had promised to betroth himself to the children of Israel forever. Here we see the garments which are washed in the blood of the Lamb. These garments of salvation prophesied for the children of Israel in Isaiah are seen further on in Revelation chapter 7 from verse 13. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, this innumerable multitude, this great multitude which was seen earlier in the chapter? And from whence they came, and I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, as it was promised in Isaiah. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So, so Bill, the tribulation is actually a period of over 2,000 years, right? Am, am I right there? Yes, seven times. I will punish you for seven times, 2,520 years. This is where the denominational churches claim that there are others besides the children of Israel who have been saved by Jesus. But the truth is that this group is also of the children of Israel, but they had not been sealed. The Great Tribulation is the promise of the seven times punishment for disobedient Israel, which is found in the curses of disobedience in Leviticus chapter 26. This is also prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where we read, And Yahweh God shall scatter you among the nations, and he shall be left few in number among and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, where Yahweh shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods. He's speaking about the coming Assyrian and Babylonian captivities and Israel going off into paganism. And ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if from thence thou shalt seek Yahweh thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou shalt seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation, the great tribulation of the seven times of punishment, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the later days, if thou turn to Yahweh thy God, thou shalt and shall be obedient unto his voice, for Yahweh 
thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. This does not describe Jews, because the Jews were scattered in 70 AD, and the apostles, speaking of the 12 tribes scattered abroad, were dead by 70 AD. They were all dead by then. James died in 62. He wasn't talking about Jews. Paul was executed in Rome by that same time. He wasn't talking about Jews. The Jews were never 12 tribes. They were never more than a portion of two tribes who had race mixed with the Edomites. As for the cleansing of the garments, one place where we read how it is that one may have a clean garment is in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepts thy works. When God accepts your works, let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. When Christ died on behalf of the children of Israel, Yahweh God would once again accept them out of their tribulation, as it says in Isaiah, and that would make their garments white. So we read in a messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 52, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. That's not necessarily speaking of the circumcision of your male appendage, right? Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion, speaking to Israelites in captivity. For thus saith Yahweh, ye have sold yourselves for naught, meaning they sold themselves into sin, and ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. So the children of Israel may put on clean garments once they are called to Christ, which is the call to awake here in this passage that's established later on in the chapter that this is clearly a messianic prophecy. The references to Egypt and Assyria are a reference to the ancient captivities of Israel, first in Egypt and first in Assyria. And second in Assyria, I'm sorry. that The captivity, I, I, I have another thread going through my mind as I said those words. The Egyptian captivity, all of Israel went into captivity in Egypt, but not all of it came out of, but not all Israelites came out of Egyptian captivity in the sense that not all of the Israelites went with Moses to be reconciled to God in, in the events of the Exodus, 
as some Israelites had migrated away from Egypt by sea. And, and in those, we see the Trojans, the Romans, described as a wild olive tree by Paul, because they weren't brought up under the, under the law, under the Levitical law. And the, the other groups that had settled in Europe, the Danning Greeks, they technically were still in Egyptian captivity. They went to Egypt, but they weren't led by God out of Egypt. So from a theological viewpoint, they're still in Egyptian captivity, and there are other prophecies mentioning Egypt and Assyria, which can validate that opinion, that theological opinion, we see a prophecy in Isaiah of Yahweh building a highway from Egypt to Assyria. That's not a literal highway. That's representative of, of all of the children of Israel someday being reconciled to Christ. It's a reference to the Israelites of the Egyptian captivity and the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. So that's another digression. It's something that I haven't really elaborated on in writing, as far as I remember. Yeah, people think that uh, the Jews are going to build some kind of uh, motorway right? <laughs> from Egypt to Assyria, and they think, oh, that must be the greater uh, Jew product uh, uh, project, sorry, to uh, build this greater Israel, right? And they get tricked and into all kind of nonsense like that. Absolutely. It, it's wow. Because sometimes the scriptures are interpreted too literally and Christians insist, wrong-headed Christians insist on interpreting them literally, where actually they are very often symbolic allegories and parables that have meanings that are not relevant outside of the history of the children of Israel. And they try to remove those passages from their historical and prophetic context, and they're forever going to be lost as to their meaning. Yep. Uh, so, so overall, you can see that the Israelites were going to be deported. They would be scattered to all the nations, which happened. They would conquer those nations, which happened. And then eventually they would, um, you know, as you just said, with uh, the Romans, etc. And then eventually they would become Christian and then they would get tyrannized by the Catholic Church, then eventually break away. And that would be the great rise where they would come to spread out and rule the world. Right. And that fits the Europeans perfectly. Right. Absolutely. And it only fits Europeans. It doesn't fit anybody else. It can't. You can't hammer anybody else. You can't hammer that. That, that square peg into a round hole. You can't hammer anybody else into the covenants and promises of God. There's no room for it in any of the language. And this leads us to another phenomenon in the Revelation which we should discuss. And that's the Song of Moses. But I probably, I, I think we should probably let that one go until next week. Mind. Yeah, that's fine. I don't mind because um, we we could um, really elaborate on it more than right, rather than trying to squeeze it in. Well, absolutely. And and for now, I want to read. I I do want to read some of those prophecies in Isaiah chapter twenty-seven. Right. 
And, and it shall come to pass in that day. Let me back up another verse because this is in, important. And it shall come to pass in that day, this is Isaiah 27, 12, that Yahweh shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and ye, speaking to the children of Israel, shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day, the phrase is repeated, that the great trumpet shall be blown, and that must be a reference to the trumpets of the Revelation the seventh trumpet, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship Yahweh in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Now, that is not a reference to people today in the ancient land of Assyria who are languishing and waiting around for this trumpet. And it's not a reference to people who were thrown out of Egypt and walking around today or will walk around at some point in the future. That's a reference to the ancient captivities of the children of Israel who were outcasts in the land of Egypt in, in the time period leading up to and including the time of the Exodus, and who were ready to perish in the land of Assyria before they migrated out of Assyria and into Europe in the captivities of Assyria. So we see in Isaiah chapter 19 a very similar analogy. In that day, there we go again, shall be a highway, there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians. That's not talking about Egyptians and Assyrians. That's speaking of children of Israel who never returned from the Egyptian captivity, and children of Israel who went off into the Assyrian captivity. And we read... And this is also metaphorical or allegorical. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom Yahweh of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. So that those people are people of the Egyptian captivity who had never gone with Moses into Palestine. And Assyria, the work of my hands... So those people are the people of the Assyrian captivity whom Yahweh sent into Assyria to be regathered in Europe at a later time, which happened over the 1,200 years following the, the time of the captivity. And Israel, mine inheritance. So this is symbolic. Actually, they are all Israel. So basically, you see that um, whatever path or route they took, that eventually they will all be reconciled together in Europe, essentially, and then ultimately become Christian and, and one day be reunited with Christ in the Supper of the Lamb, right? That he's not going to let even one, uh, Christ, one Israelite go, right? Absolutely. Okay. That's um, probably about all I can say at this moment, but... Those washing of the garments and, and white robes, those things were addressed in the prophets. We're told that the children of Israel would have clean robes, that Yahweh would clean their robes. That's the blood of Christ in which the people of this tribulation, which is a reference to the tribulations of the children of Israel, that's the blood of Christ in which they would wash their garments. 
they suffered in the tribulations because they weren't sealed. And the people that were sealed, they had a, a, a better promise. We can't really know all of the rewards of their being sealed, but they were preserved, evidently, through the fall of the Roman Empire. Yes, yeah, so ultimately, um, when we're in heaven, the, the kingdom of God is it's only going to be uh, the Israelites, right? If uh, you've got some nigger friend, Tyrone, who you, you're expecting to be up there, well, you're going to be disappointed, right? Well, right, and, and there were promises, other promises to the Adamic race as a whole, but they don't, the other Adamic nations don't have a share in these particular promises. Only Israelites have a share. That's why when Paul of Tarsus went to Athens and spoke on the Hill of Airs, the Areopagus, also called the Hill of Mars, that's why he never mentioned Jesus. He never mentioned Christ because they were not Israelites because they were Ionian Greeks. The Athenians were primarily Ionian Greeks. So Paul had no, no reason to mention Christ to them. Christ isn't for them. He did speak to them in along the terms of, of Genesis and the promises made to the wider Adamic race that they too are children of God, but they're not Israelites. Yeah, so he, he still respected them as uh, fellow Adamites, but he just had a different message, right? But he wouldn't respect uh, non-Adamites at all, right? Absolutely. Absolutely not. They have no promise at all. Okay, thank you for being here. Thanks for me, as always, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.